So we're looking at this idea in Philippians 3. We've been working, I think it's this the fourth or fifth sermon, uh, working our way through Philippians. Uh, we, as we've done that, we've talked about the idea that um, the purpose of the book uh, was Paul wanted to thank them for their partnership with him in ministry, prayer, finances, um, also to encourage them. Especially he talks about rejoicing and being joyful in all circumstances, and he wants them to think rightly about the Christian life. Um, Paul's worldview is that if you think right, you act right. And if your thinking's wrong, your action is going to be wrong as well. And then there are some issues, specific issues as well, that he deals with in the book because of his incredible love for the Philippian church and that sense of partnership, them being together. A uh, big thing we want to remember is that he wrote this letter from prison, which always strikes me for all the times he talks about rejoicing and joy. And um, So even as we talk about this third chapter today, I want to encourage you to think about if you were one of the recipients of the letter in Philippi. And here you have this letter in front of you from the Apostle Paul, who you remember when he came uh, years before and was there and one number of people of the Lord and the church started out of that and he was persecuted while he was there and now he's writing this letter from, from prison. Um, so put yourselves in those shoes as, as we think about that. In the first chapter, he encouraged them to keep living the Christian life. It was a, a lot of encouragement. The second chapter, he gave Epaphroditus, t- uh, Timothy, and himself as examples of how to live the Christian life and told them basically follow our model. And we talked about that idea of how helpful it is when we have somebody who models for us the things we want in our lives. In fact, on our trip, Kia asked me, she said, Dad, when was the times that you grew the most in your Christian life? I thought about that for a long time and I said, you know, I think the common denominator of the times when I grew the most was when I was around other people that were really zealous for God and challenged me and served as examples for me. Um, and Paul would say the same. He, people, the example of people, it can be so powerful in our lives. Um, and then now in chapter 3, he's going to give some specific exhortations to them how to keep living a life that's pleasing to God. And I like that phrase, and I, uh, you know, how is my life pleasing to you? Uh, sometimes when I pray, I say, God, would you do what's going to bring pleasure to you, what's going to be pleasing to you? Uh, and I encourage you to, to ask that question and think that way. Is my life pleasing God? And isn't that a wonderful thing to think that what you do, your obedience can bring pleasure to the God of all creation, the Almighty God, can get pleasure from your obedience. Even if it's something really small, it can bring him pleasure as your heavenly father when he sees his child submitting to him, wanting to honor and glorify him. So as we look at uh, chapter 3, and those that have a handout, I I left off verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. We're including that. Um, Some of you may know that when the Bible was originally written, it didn't have the verse numbers in it, and it didn't have the chapters in it. The chapters came around the 9th century, uh, were a couple examples of it, and then especially in the 13th century, they added 
the chapter numbers to the Bible. But because of that, um, often we'll read a section and we'll stop at the end of the chapter. But this is a good example of a chapter where really the first verse of the fourth chapter belongs in the context of this. Um, and so we've included that. So this is ch- Philippians chapter 3 and, and chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, and there's kind of three sections. First, Paul talks about uh, rejoicing in the importance of putting our confidence for salvation in Christ. It really hammers home this idea. It's not by works we're saved, but it's in, through Christ alone. And then he talks about them, how to have a walk that pleases God. And then lastly, he talks about because of the hope that we have, that believers should be uh, motivated to stand firm. So let's jump right in here in this uh, first 11 verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It is, a, it is safe for you, or it is a safeguard for you. Now look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Uh, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now what's interesting here is he starts with finally, I don't know if, if you look at if you have a Bible, open up and look. There's four chapters in this, and he's on chapter three, and he says, "Finally." Um, there's a lot of preachers that do that. Finally, and then they go on another thirty minutes. I've been guilty of that myself a few times. Last Sunday we were in church, and afterwards Taylor said, "Yeah, he said finally," and then he went for another twenty-five minutes. <laughs> well, I looked at this, and actually. Uh, this is more of a cultural thing. Apparently, in a lot of the Greek writings of that time, when you said finally, it just means you're past the halfway mark. Doesn't, doesn't mean you're necessarily on the home stretch necessarily. So, so that's where Paul was coming from him. So we'll cut him some slack on that. Okay, but then this. My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. The NIV goes one step further in translating this to say it's a safeguard for you. So again, what's interesting here in Philippians, Paul's in jail, and I counted them up. There's the Greek word uh, kairos, um, which means uh, to rejoice. And it's nine times in Philippians he uses it. 
So he's writing from prison nine times. And then the word joy, which is kara in Greek, he uses five times. So all throughout this book, he's writing from prison. He's telling them to rejoice and to have joy. And one of the mature signs of a mature Christian, I believe, is we can look at our own life and say, am I able to have joy? Am I able to rejoice despite the circumstances I'm in? And if you can, that's, that should be an encouragement to you that your God is really maturing you. But if you say, oh, my joy, my rejoicing only happens when everything's going great, then uh, pray and ask God to transform your life because that's an amazing thing that he does is to give us the ability to rejoice and have joy when things aren't going the way we might want them to. Um, and Paul was that way. And he keeps telling him this must be really important because he talks about it so many times. And then he says, to write the same things you use, no trouble, because it's a safeguard for you. Now some say actually he might be talking about when he says about saying the same thing again. In chapter 1, he briefly mentioned uh, these people that were saying, oh, you have to be circumcised to be saved. And so they're saying, oh, that's what he's talking about when he's talking about writing it again. That's possible, but it's a little bit weird that he puts it before going in to talk about it. He seems like he'd talk about it and then say, you know, talk about it again is no problem. Um, I think it's more likely that it's with regard to rejoice, which he says nine times in the letter. He says to talk about it again is no problem. Why? Because it's a safeguard to you. And as I did some meditating on that, it really helped me see what in essence he's saying is, if you're not rejoicing, then you're in a dangerous place. If you are rejoicing, that act of rejoicing guards you. It's a safeguard. It protects you. What's it protect you from? Well, if you're um, able to rejoice at all times, then you're able to sense God is in control. He's sovereign. He's at work for me, for my best. He sees me. I can trust him. But if you're in a place in your life where you're not able to rejoice or you're not having joy, what may be happening is there may be some bitterness there, some doubting. Can God, God are you really with me? Things, have you noticed things aren't going very well? Are you there, God? Do you care about me? God, I don't know if I can trust that you really see me through this. So if that's your case, that you do, that you find yourself, you're not rejoice, you're not able to rejoice in your current circumstances. Paul would say that, hey, that's dangerous. Be careful. And go to God and ask him, God, show me, strengthen my faith, grow my faith, that I can trust you through this. Because he that's what he wants to do. And that's what Paul wants to see happen in the Philippians. And that's why. So one more time he tells them, rejoice, because. It'll safeguard you. If you're rejoicing, you're in a protected place. Then he goes on in verse 2 and 3. Look out for the dogs, those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The flesh. So this is those people, the Judaizers that are saying, hey, if you want to be sure you're saved, the way you can be sure of that is if you get circumcised through the act, the, the, the work um, this quote, good work. That's what you need to do to be saved. And if you haven't been circumcised, you're not saved. Well, that's a very scary thing at this point in the church where we have all these Gentiles coming in. 
And so the fact that there exists this group that's trying to tell them, hey, you're not part of the family of Israel if you haven't been circumcised. And how does Paul counter it? He says, and there's another place in the scripture that calls this group the circumcision was kind of their way of referring to them. And Paul says here, no, we are the circumcision. And what's interesting is in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says this, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So way back in Deuteronomy it said God would circumcise the heart and I believe that's what Paul's referring to her. When he says we're the circumcision, we're the, the true circumcision, we're the ones who've had our heart circumcised. This idea of the needless skin or the needless part, sin, has been stripped away from our heart and we've been purified. So we're the true circumcision, not those guys. And having our sin dealt with by the Lord uh, makes us the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So we don't, we don't have to worry about the works of the flesh, that we're doing good deeds to earn our way into heaven or that we've done this good deed of getting uh, circumcised. We don't need that because God himself has done away with the sin in our heart and purified us and saved us. And then on in verse 4, he goes to talk about, but, well, let's say it was by our status here that it was a matter of being an ethnic Jew or being one that's circumcised, that that's what really gets us saved. He says, well, if that's the case, and we should have confidence in our flesh, the things we've done, he said, well, then I should be the greatest. And if anybody thinks they should have confidence in the flesh, me. And then he shows all the ways that he would be superior to, quote, this circumcision group. Because he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was from the tribe of Israel, or from the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and someone who was blameless under the law. Wow. Those are some pretty impressive credentials, especially if your salvation is dependent upon your spiritual credentials. Or in this case, he's making how truly Jewish you are then man, he's the man. Then he could say, boy, I'm saved if that's the, if that's the criteria. Um, but he goes on to say, no, but it's not the criteria. If it was, I'd be in great shape. So I could easily embrace that idea. It would be very beneficial to me. But I'm telling you, it's not the case. And it's interesting, too, when he says in here he was a persecutor of the church. You know, it said there was Saul or Paul giving approval as the people stood over Stephen's body after he was stoned. So Paul approved of that. He was the one going around, pulling, finding where the Christians were in different places and pulling them out. And while uh, he met, we don't know if he directly killed anybody, he was part, he was guilty of being a murderer, conspiring with others to kill Christians. And I believe that's why he says later, I am the worst of all sinners um, when he looks back and see what his heart was like before his heart was circumcised by God 
and the sin cut away. Then he goes on. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for Christ. And said, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this is just one of the clearest, most powerful accounts that everybody should be able to figure out that we are saved by faith. It's not by any other credentials. It's not by how Jewish we are. Um, It is by Christ and Christ alone. It's not about how much we have suffered. Uh, It's not our ethnic group. I mean, that's not really an issue today where people are saying, oh, I'm a Christian because of all the Old Testament laws that I follow. I mean, occasionally you'll run into somebody like that, or you don't meet people that um, say, it's because of my ethnic group that I'm definitely saved. I mean, years ago, I know in the Korean church wasn't there this uh, Chosun word, and so people say, oh, we are the chosen people, and there's a, but, you know, today I don't, we don't really see people that are real, it's very rare to see somebody that thinks because of their ethnic group. That's what's bringing them salvation. So I think the issue is a little different today. It's one of credibility, but it's more today, I think the issue is are many people rely upon their life or their, especially their church credibility, can sneak into their thinking, into our thinking, to where we think our, or we begin to flirt with the idea that our, sal- or act like the, our salvation is dependent on our church credibility. What I, buy, what I mean by that is, someone might say, well, yeah, at our church, we, we have daily Bible reading, and I, I do my, on Tuesdays, I'm supposed to write people. Every Tuesday, I write mine. I'm so faithful that uh, there's no doubt that I'm, God's favor is on me. I'm, I'm saved. Not only that, but a lot of people, they just write on their day. Don't tell anybody, but they just write on their quiet time day. I do my quiet time every day, even when I don't have to send it to others. I'm, I'm something. I'm big stuff in this Christian life. Not only that, but we go to church every Sunday. We didn't miss one Sunday. Well, okay, one Sunday we were on vacation, but that was it last year. All right? And I go to men's group faithfully. Faithfully, especially when they have those eating out things. I'm always there. <laughs> and I'm at community group. I'm there. We're there every Sunday. We're, we're committed. My credibility, my church credibility is there. And I think this is a real aspect. that That's where today more we see people thinking, of course God is going to let me into heaven. I'm, I'm doing way better than a lot of people. And we have to be careful of that. And just as Paul said to this idea, oh, your Jewishness, how faithful to the law you are, today that same principle is not how faithful to church activity, that's not what saves us. It's only through Christ and what he's done for us. So we, that is something we need to be very, very careful about. Um, then, He ends this by saying, 
that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so the verse before that, he says, I have a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness that depends upon faith. And it's that righteousness that's given by God, or we use this religious term, imparted, imputed. It's something that's given to us not based on any sense of us earning it or deserving it, but what God has just done for us. That's what gives us this power of the resurrection. That's what helps us attain the resurrection from the dead, that when we die, we'll spend eternity in heaven with God. So it's what's Christ done for us, not what we've done on our own. Then he goes on and talks about here, Paul straining toward the goal. And this is really interesting. He talks about the idea of perfection as well. Not that I have already obtained this, this resurrection from the dead, or that I am already perfect, completely Christ-like, is the idea of perfection generally. But I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal, toward the prize of the upward call of God and Christ Jesus. So here we have this interesting idea. On one hand, we have perfection. On the other hand, Paul uses this word striving. I press on. In other places, he strives. And it seems like a contradiction. Is, are we to be striving or do we rest in what Christ has done for us? Well, yes. Uh, they're talking about different things we need to be clear of. I had a friend once that shared in college. He called it the Z diagram. And if you if you're, use your imagination, you can see a Z in it. For you, from your perspective, so be like this if you had a Z. And he says, here's where we become a Christian, this line of the Z. And he says, immediately as we become a Christian, there's also, we've become justified, legally declared righteous in God's eyes. So we become a Christian, but the moment that happens, we also become legally justified, uh, uh, righteous in God's eyes, because God's righteousness has been given to us, imputed to us at that moment. But all of our life, there's this line, okay? The process of sanctification, okay? To be sanctified is to be set apart. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more holy, more and more like Christ. And so at the same time, we have been, we're immediately uh, justified and set, we're immediately sanctified. But there's also a process of sanctification. We're set apart right from the moment we believe. But all of our life is a process of becoming more and more like Christ. And then when we get to heaven, again, then we achieve this top line of Christ-likeness. And we're given a new body, an imperishable body, uh, an amazing body, and an eternal soul, and we'll live with God uh, forever. So we see both. There's, there's a sense of striving. We are to make effort in the Christian life. Um, in honor of my brother Abe, I'm going to do something he would often do, which is 
talk about whatever he's been learning that week or whatever he learned in class. If you know Abe, that's, you would have to agree with that, right? Have you ever had him? Oh, yeah, this week I, we learned about that, and then he'll go on to tell you, well, it's, it's great. I love it. I love that's one of the great things about Abe. He's a lifetime learner. He's always learning. And part of, I think, why he's so smart about things is because he talks about them. He doesn't just hear it once, but he repeats it. And by repeating it, he processes it and solidifies it. In his, and he, as he interacts with others about it, it makes it even more clear for him. So if you'll uh, indulge me, I'm, I'm going to honor Abe doing this. This week I've had a class on... Um, yeah, what was it? On? Oh, spiritual formation. <laughs> so this process of how we become more like Christ. And one of the things we did was we've been studying um, some books by Richard Foster. You may have heard his name. He did Celebration of Disciplines and a devotional book called Devotional Classics. And he, uh, in another book he does, where he looks at six different streams or traditions of the way people um, sought about having spiritual growth in their life. Um, those six include, I should be able to do it by memory, but <laughs> I was tired this week, like I said. All right, uh, the com- contemplative method, social justice, justice tradition, the holiness tradition, the charismatic tradition, the evangelical tradition, and the incarnational tradition. And actually, each of these traditions has real strengths, and we can learn from aspects of each of them, and each of them has potential weaknesses as well. But interestingly, I, was, I, got, I have six classmates, and when they did the selection process, I was gone or something, so I got left with the holiness one. Um, but it was, turned out to be a great blessing. I was kind of bummed, like, I didn't get to choose mine, you know. Um, it was kind of like a baby, but... I'm only 57. (laughs) And so I got that, and as I began to study it, I was really blessed by this. The holiness movement was started by John Wesley, the Methodists. They had a method. They're called Methodists because they had a method for how they would see people grow in Christ. And that was a big emphasis. Christianity, they said, was not just about getting saved. It's a Going from there, it's this process, how do you become more like Christ? And they gave a lot of attention to that. And we do today, and I praise God that as a church, that is a big emphasis for us. There's much in the holiness movement that we see lived out in our congregation. But the holiness movement would say, we need to put effort uh, toward our Christian lives. Now, any change that happened is utterly because of God. But... They're, we're in a partnership with them, and we need to be doing our part. And interestingly, they say there are times in our lives where God just intervenes and does something like that, and we have spurts of growth that, growth that we can't even figure out. Uh, for example, somebody that's struggling with alcohol maybe, and then one day they just wake up and they have no taste for alcohol anymore, or some addiction or some problem, it's gone. Uh, and they say that happens. That's generally not the majority of cases. The typical example is people work on some issue for a long time, and they propose that a great way to become more holy is through use of the classic disciplines like fasting and prayer and solitude. Do any of those sound familiar? Okay, and study, study of the Bible. Um, Some others, meditation, simplicity, Submission, service, confession, guidance, 
celebration are all considered the classic disciplines. And they say by doing that, it strengthens our whole person, our whole spiritual person, and, and we're often then able to experience growth. The holiness movement said, we do what we can, the spiritual disciplines, we can do those, so that God can do in us what we can't do, which is loving our neighbor, taking initiative to resolve conflict, the difficult things of the Christian life, the things we can't do or find really hard to do. Well, if we'll focus on the things we can do, these spiritual disciplines, um, a good example of it, I think, or an analogy would be an Olympic-caliber javelin thrower, okay? So they run up, and then they throw this javelin. Well, the Olympic-caliber ones, the way they train is not by just every day spending hours and hours throwing this javelin, which would make sense, wouldn't it? If every time you throw the javelin, aren't you using all the muscles that throwing a javelin requires? Yeah. But the ones that become the Olympic champions are ones that spend time sprinting, running upstairs. They do lots of weightlifting on every part of their body. They do lots of work on their core muscles. Uh, and of course, yes, they've spent a lot of time working on their shoulder and their right arm or whatever arm they throw with. But that's not what, they just don't focus on that one thing. In the same way, this holy movement, holiness movement or tradition would say the same. We, we work on a number of these spiritual disciplines and we become in generally, in general or overall, we become spiritually stronger and our overall strength helps us to be able to say no to more and more things and to become more holy. Just as these Olympic athletes, they find as they strengthen all of their muscles, they are able to throw the javelin further. So it's kind of, they, they call it an indirect method. Rather than if you're struggling with alcohol, rather than just every day focusing on, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, they would say, no, focus on a, a number of these spiritual disciplines to, to help your whole overall spiritual uh, strength to grow, and that in turn will help you. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. He strives. I'm not perfect. I haven't reached perfect Christ-likeness, but I press on. Okay, I continue to strive. Okay, now, the progress that happens is only because of God. But they're, they're often, when we do put effort toward it, that's when God chooses to, to bless it. Okay, but there are times when God just says, boom, your taste for alcohol is gone. And so we're ever dependent, utterly dependent upon God. But God wants us to play a role with him. Um, and on that note, I would have each of you think, well, how am I doing? I'm, I'm not calling here to salvation by works, but uh, because we know it's only through Christ and also our sanctification, our, this process of becoming more and more Christ-like doesn't happen because of our effort, but we are encouraged and commanded to make an effort at it, put some effort toward it. And to be honest, I think in all of our lives, there are times when we don't put much effort toward our spiritual growth. It becomes not a priority, but we leave it sitting on the shelf or we don't, we're not doing anything that's good for our spiritual growth. We're just coasting sometimes. And we need to realize that's, that's a dangerous position that typically we're not going to see a lot of growth. 
Sometimes by God's grace, it happens in the middle of us doing nothing. I remember when I was in college, there was a, oh, I worked with a guy. He was trained. He would go on staff with a Christian organization, and he told me the story. He said, oh, I went through a terrible time in my life when I was in the Air Force, and he said, I got hooked into pornography, and I got to the point where I would go down to the X-rated movie shops and watch X-rated movies. And he said, one day I went into the movie, I came out, and I was feeling so bad. I know I was just disobeying God. And I happened to go to a coffee shop and sit next to somebody, and he said, don't you know, I led the person to Christ. <laughs> he said, I just knew I needed to share with them. I had confessed my sins. I still felt horrible, but I just... We got in a conversation, and I told them the gospel, and they believed. He said, God's grace is just amazing, isn't it? God should have been punishing me. That's what I felt. But here he uses me when I'm so disobedient. And because of that, then I began following him more than ever as I realized his grace that he poured out in my life. So both are important. We, there's part that we have to play in this journey. Then the second uh, section, Paul goes on to talk about uh, walking in a way that pleases God. And he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, well, God's going to show that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Okay, let's hold on to the eternal life. Let's hold on to the salvation that we have. Um, And he says, he, he refers to, let those who are mature think this way, that one, we're not perfect, but that we need to press on because Christ has made us his own, uh, that we don't just coast. We should all have this attitude that we need to continue to, to work. But again, we're doing it knowing that ultimately it's all dependent upon God, but that we have a part in it. Then brothers, join, me in, imi- join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, as I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame, with their minds set on earthly things. Okay, so here he's saying, if you're going to walk in a way pleasing to God, one, you need to follow the examples of others. Okay, he said, Paul says, follow my example. Okay, of how to live the Christian life. That is so helpful. We have the scriptures and we better have our nose in the Bible and learning from it. But we also are greatly helped by being around and watching others live the, the victorious life. But then he says the other thing we need to do if we're going to please God is we need to be wary and aware that there are enemies to the cross. And who are they? They're, they're people whose God is their belly. In other words, if it feels good, do it. If they feel uh, hungry, they go eat. If they feel some sexual urge, they go some way and find to fulfill it. Whatever their belly tells them. So they're, they're uh, living based on um, just what they feel. If it feels good, do it. And then he contrasts and says, but no, our citizenship is not like them. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to transform our bodies to be like His body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So this last thing is, we need to 
constantly before us have this picture and this hope, remembering that our citizenship is heaven. We're going to live eternally there. And we should be waiting. And actually, in the NIV, it says eagerly waiting. And I went and looked back at the Greek in, in Strong's Concordance. It says it's typically that Greek word means to not just wait, but to eagerly wait. How about you? Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus to return? This week at 12.30 on Wednesday night, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, when my PowerPoint presentation, I deleted it for the next day by accident. I was ready for the Lord's return. (laughs) Thankfully, my son helped me, but I ended up, it all ended well, but I not only, I fell asleep and I woke up and I realized my finger had been on there. I'd created 185 new pages <laughs> on my PowerPoint presentation. So I went, I was in a stupor, and I went to erase them. I erased the whole presentation and then hit the save button. But fortunately, um, I had some notes and was able to recover. God is good. All ended well. Um, there are times when we say, oh, Lord, come quickly. <laughs> but he wants us to live every day eagerly awaiting his return because it is going to be so incredible it is going to be so incredible we're going to have a glorious body i like that description in some place other places it's an imperishable body but here it's a glorious body and he's going to transform us we'll be transformed we're no longer going to be struggling every day with these sins Sometimes it's, it's discouraging, isn't it? When we, oh God, I did the same sin again. Lord, is there any hope for me? I, no, there's going to be a day when we're not going to have to strive anymore because we will be like him. Wow, that is going to be something else, especially because it's going to be for eternity. And we're going to be in eternity with him who has the power to subject all things to himself. So he is going to be sovereign, ruling over everything, and we'll be with him for eternity. Which then leads into this last part, that believers are motivated to stand firm because of this amazing hope. And Paul, this is verse 1 of chapter 4, but it really goes with this one because there's a therefore there. And whenever there's a therefore, we need to figure out what it's there for. And it's linking the therefore, he's saying, because... Jesus is coming and is going to transform our bodies and we're going to get glorious bodies and he's going to reign over every, everything will be subject to him. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. In other words, we need to always be thinking, have the end in mind. In one of the great business books ever written, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of the second, I think the second principle is start with the end in mind. Now, some people say, oh, don't be reading business book. That guy's a Mormon, don't you know? I wrote that book. And those principles, that, you know, that's not a biblical principle. Well, yes, it is. It's right here. Philippians chapter 1 and the end of this. This was a principle 2,000 years before he put it in his book. It's from the Bible. He just happened to use it. Start with the end in mind. That's what Paul is saying here. We will, you will, I will live my life differently when I start with the end in mind. When I'm thinking about, wow, one day 
It's going to be a short time compared with this current life. I'm going to spend eternity with Christ. I just have this little short time to serve him now. And then I'm going to get a glorious body. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. I'm going to see him face to face, and I'm going to be changed in a moment to be like him, to be like him, to be Christ-like, and the strivings will stop. That's what we have to look forward to. That's how we can rejoice, even in our current struggles, as we know that lies ahead. That's what motivates us. Oh, I want to be as Christ-like as I can now. This short time he's given me to live life here. So, to review what he's taught us here in Philippians 3. Rejoicing safeguards us. And if we're not rejoicing, we're in a place of danger. A place of danger. Okay, rejoice is mentioned nine times, joy five times. A mature Christian's joy is not dependent on our circumstances. That's a hard one to swallow. Yeah, there are still times when I lose my joy. One I remember I have a little saying I picked up from a friend, unfortunately. But sometimes when I do little repairs around the house, I've learned to not start them at the end of the day because I might be up all night. Something you know happens, and I remember one year it was oh we started using a manger in China. I thought this is gonna be cool. Instead of having a Christmas tree, we're gonna have a manger and we get a baby Jesus and we put it. And I'm gonna build it out of local materials, out of bamboo. And so I got bamboo and hay and. I don't know if you know, but to put two round bamboo poles in an X like this and get them to stay is really hard. They just kept falling down, and I was up so late trying to get them, and I used so much bailing wire to get it to work, and in the end, it looked okay, but I, the next day, they came, came down, I said, oh, I almost lost my salvation last night putting that thing together. Um, so sometimes when I do projects, I said, oh, I, gosh, I just about lost my salvation doing that. Well, I, I didn't, of course. I'm not gonna, you can't, don't lose your salvation. A genuine salvation will last forever. But it felt like that. I lost my joy. I lost my joy of salvation, what I had to say. That would have been the truth. Well, last night I lost my joy of salvation putting that, that manger together. Um, yeah. So let's pray. And ask God to teach us to put effort toward our spiritual life, strengthening ourselves so more and more God will be able to help us do the things we can't do, to love our enemies, to return a good word when someone speaks harshly to us. Then this idea of Paul despised those who look to the circumcision or works as the key to salvation. That was, you know, I didn't talk about that a lot, but he called them dogs. That's, that's pretty harsh. And it's because the salvation of people is on the line. If there are people that think it's going to be their Jewishness or their ability to follow the Old Testament laws that's going to save them, that's important to Paul. And he's not going to mince words about that. And that's why he called them dogs. They were people that were evil, evildoers, leaving people astray from salvation. Then we talked about credentials, that it's our... um, Paul's credentials would have been impeccable, but they're not what count. Um, And he saw them as garbage compared to knowing Christ. They were nothing. They didn't give him salvation. And along those lines, we talk about our Christian credibility. 
We think that our church credibility or our life credentials are of value. But they don't... The, the fact that you go every Sunday to church, that's a great thing. The fact that you go to community group, great. But that's not going to... It doesn't affect your salvation. It's only what Jesus has done for you that, that does it. We have to be careful not to let that creep in. And we need to remember that's in comparison to knowing Christ. Those things just don't matter. Uh, I was thinking about, too, some of the things in the past that I've thought uh, or that people brag, you know, what school we go to, what we graduated from sometimes, or some course we finished, some degree we got. We're inside, we're a little bit smug. Yeah, that... I'm pretty proud of that. You know, I don't like to tell people. But well, okay, I do like to tell people about that. Uh, <laughs> but we think we can think that matters something. But I know for me, the older I get, the more I realize, wow, that just doesn't matter. It's just not important. What's important in life is loving God and loving people. And they don't really care what school you went to or how often you go to home group. or but what they care about is when they... People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah, it's our love for people. Mature believers should continually seek, put effort to be more like Christ. Not because that's what saves us, not because we're not saved by works, but God honors our desire to be more like Christ. That's just the facts. Then we need to be ever watchful of the enemies of Christ around us and we need to eagerly await the return of Christ. So, this is how the Word of God is speaking to us in Philippians 3. So just as we're going to go to our groups in a moment, but I want you to be thinking about that. About how are you doing at rejoicing in particular? Are you in a safe or dangerous place? Are you guilty of ever thinking of the lie that the reason you'll get to heaven is because of good works or because you're better or nicer than most people? You know, they once, uh, someone was talking, they said, you know, often we compare ourselves to others when it comes to salvation. Well, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a lot better than those people. And they said, so they say, well, how would you put yourself next to Billy Graham? And they say, and they put you know, a chart from here to here, good to not so good. And they say, well, Billy Graham's probably way up there. You know, I'm, uh, I'm probably here. <laughs> a lot better than a lot of people. You know, what about Mother Teresa? Well, she's right up there with Billy Graham. I'm I'm a little below her, but not a whole lot. And then they said, you know, but as people over throughout time have talked to Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, and they asked them, where do you stack up on this list? Really godly people typically say, oh, I am such a sinner. I've failed Christ in so many ways. I'm, yeah, boy, there's so many people better than me, and I'm not... I'm such a sinner. Isn't that interesting? So comparing ourselves to others is, is not what getting to heaven is based on. And I would just end with, if there's anyone here that has never realized that their salvation is by the work of Christ dying on the cross for our sins, and that we believe that that is what brings us righteousness, is Him purifying us by dying for our sins, and we commit that we're going to turn from evil and follow him. Uh, that's how we become a Christian. If there's someone here that's never done that or has been thinking that they are going to get into heaven or establish a relationship with God through one of these other ways, I'd encourage you to come talk to me or Paul or 
by someone here at the church and they can tell you how you can become a Christian and a follower of him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, we just ask that you would um, really work your word from our heads down to our hearts. And, and Lord, I know for many, uh, we want to work more, put more effort to being more like you. But Lord, keep us from legalism or thinking that our salvation comes from effort. But help us to hold and balance these ideas rightly, knowing that you do honor it when we have zeal and desire and passion to become more like you. You, you see that as our Heavenly Father and you, you so often bless and honor that. And Lord, that is our desire, that we would please you and glorify you by becoming more like you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.